this, this recording of the Northern Spin podcast. I'm Michael Taylor and I present the people the Northern Spin podcast. I'm also, I ought to declare my interest here, I am a strategic advisor to the board of the People's Powerhouse. I've been to every single one of the conventions, so I've, I've had the experience of Sunderland, Bradford, and, uh, and of course, and now here in Manchester. Where was the other one? Doncaster, the very first one in Doncaster. I love the ethos of the People's Powerhouse. I love the idea that it's a counter to the fact that politics is done to people rather than with people and taking you along on that journey. And for, for, for want of a better term, I want all stakeholders in the North to engage, to, to lean in and to work with community groups, to work with charities, to work with the public sector to make the North a better, richer, um, more culturally relevant place. All the things that, that everybody was saying this morning. So we decided to do the, um, the, the Northern Spin podcast. To be fair, it was his idea, right? We, we know each other, yeah. but we, we weren't friends. We didn't know each other. We'd never worked together. We definitely weren't friends, Mike. And, <laughs> and, I, and, I and I got a call out of the blue from the small C conservative, I've outed you already, yeah, Chris, um, that he said, I've been listening to the Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart podcast. How many of you listen to that? Well, Chris said he loved it. <laughs> now, I pointed out, Michael, that it's number one in the podcast charts, and that's what we have to aspire to. <laughs> yeah, but it's but it's but like like a lot of other podcasts, like the the news agents, like uh, um, lots of other podcasts. Yeah, they're very they're very Westminster focused. Yeah, they may occasionally be graced with the presence of the King of the North occasionally on on one of the podcasts, but but essentially it's a commentary on Westminster. Chris had the idea. He said, "I want to do it, and I need a partner to do it with." And I was really humbled that he thought of me. I thought of Guy Neville first. <laughs> <laughs> but he wasn't available, Michael, so... <laughs> right, so, um, so anyway, Chris approached me, and the reason was, is for the last year, I'd been working for the Labour Party in Stockport, um, and my background, like Chris's, is in journalism. Uh, I, but I have that, so I have that nosiness, that curiosity, and although I describe myself as large P political, because quite clearly I've been working for the Labour Party, I stood as a, as a parliamentary candidate in 2015, unsuccessfully, obviously, or I wouldn't be here doing a podcast with Chris Maguire. I'd be, I'd be being bullied by the Whips office or something. Um, but I've always campaigned as a journalist for a fair deal for the North. Yeah, Even when I was writing about the television business and I was working in London, I used to say, you know, the, the ITV franchise system being broken up, I thought, was a disgrace. Yeah. We had a really good broadcasting system in this country that was pivoted on regions. I always say to people, where do you live? When you're on holiday, you know, you say, you're from Manchester, you're from Greater Manchester, you're from Stockport, or wherever it is you're from. I always go, Granada land. Yeah? I hope maybe that means something to some of you here today. Um, and I was, I was involved in the initial campaign for a regional assembly on the, for the northwest of England. So to accurately quote my late great friend, Anthony H. Wilson, I suffered from that excess of civic pride. And at a time when regional print media is declining, and I think we can all agree that it is, despite many bold and noble efforts to improve things, um, we think that between us, and Chris has launched a new media brand recently called Business, he's got Business Cloud, yeah. and well, Tech Blast, I'll get him to yeah. describe that. Um, we, all, we think we've got insights. So we didn't want to just provide a commentary on what's going on in politics. We wanted to provide some insights 
and the opportunity to come here today and meet a few more people around the People's Powerhouse, it gives us an opportunity to really spice up our podcast as well and to have a few other voices than just a couple of white fellas in their 50s. Despite appearances, yes, we are in our 50s. I'm, Chris, I'm, what's your take on that? I'm just in my 50s. Uh, Michael is uh, Much more he's in the middle of his 50s. Yeah, I mean, the background is is that you know I'm from Kent. I mean, Michael describes me as the cheeky chappy from Kent. Um, no, I don't. I call you the banter king of Kent or the cheeky chappy from Chorley. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I never listen to what he says, and that's the reason why I can't remember it. But he, he describes me in those affectionate terms. And... Uh, but, but I've been a journalist for a long time, I was at North West Insider, and I've lived up here for 17 years, I've got two daughters, so they've gone to school in the North, I feel passionate about the North, I feel like an adopted Northern, I'm told if I stay here another 30 years, I'll be accepted. And I just realised that me and Michael had much more in common than we had apart, and I'm just frustrated, so frustrated, when, when I see us get the thin end of the wedge of everything, and every podcast that you hear is London-centric, and no one's putting a voice for the North, and yet, in 2019, when the Red Wall you know, one and the, and the sort of Conservatives one, it was on the back of the Northern Powerhouse agenda, it was on the back of the levelling up agenda, and there's not enough there. Um, and, and Michael's right, I'd probably describe myself as a Conservative with a lowercase c. I voted Labour, I voted Conservative, but I just feel that actually, if we're going to, if the North is going to hit its potential, then it needs people to keep shouting about it, and there's people in this room willing to do it as well. We launched a podcast, in fact, we launched a podcast the week after Liz Truss became the Prime Minister. I don't know if anyone remembers her, Liz Truss, about so tall, <laughs> uh, didn't last very long. So we've, out, so we've outlived, uh, we've outlived uh, Liz Truss as well. So technically um, we launched it when Boris Johnson was Prime Minister, so we're on our third already. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I just think it's just, we live in crazy times. Um, and, and we're so pleased that we've got three amazing speakers today. And what we want to try and do is use this really to, to A, grow our audience and awareness, but also get great speakers. Um, we did one last week with uh, Nicola Headlam at Red, uh, Red Flag Alert. She was a civil servant in the Northern Powerhouse and she lifted the lid on Boris Johnson and everything. And then, you know, the feedback we, we get, it's just, it's just growing and growing. And hopefully we will be as big and as popular as Rory Stewart one day, if not for us, be your good self. In the <laughs> um, but I suppose really we should, uh, you know, get our first speaker on. Yeah, no, we should. Uh, you, you've talked a little bit about your background, Chris. Yeah. You, you were going to describe me and I was going to describe you. Have I done that adequately already? Um, no, I tell you, if I was to describe Michael, I don't know how many people in the room know who Michael Taylor is. <laughs> yeah. I know it's my wife hasn't put her hand on. <laughs> no, because what I think is really interesting is that Michael's somebody who's been around for donkey's years. He won't mind me saying that. Um, you can just tell by looking at him. He's got that, you know, that lived-in look. And he comes across as a very proud Northerner, which he most definitely is. He comes across as a Blackburn Rovers fan, you know, which, he, which he's very proud to be as well. He's a father of five, he's Mr Marple, he's all of the above, he's a you know, huge music fan, he's a music DJ, he's all of these things as well. And um, he can look sometimes a little bit, you know, miserable, you know, but, but when you get to know him, you realise actually he's teetotal, he's a massive Christian, you know, he, he, he's, just, he, he's a, a gym bunny, and I know people looking at him now would say, really? Um, but he's passionate about the North, he is. Um, and actually what I found, getting to know Michael, it's, there's so much more to him. And, and that's where we share that interest in the North. I mean, how would you describe me? Well, I'd describe you as a busy, lively guy. I think that's come across here, here today. You like, I think it's fair to say that you like good news and telling good <laughs> stories, yeah. rather than necessarily picking over negatives and being mean about people. I don't think that comes naturally to you, which is, I think, uh, a good attribute, which is all the more surprising when you discover that Chris used to work for the Daily Mail. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Ta taxi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, he also has his passions in life, uh, cricket, 
yeah. uh, very much his family as well, and in particular women's football, where his daughter plays to a very high standard as the goalkeeper for Derby County. Uh, yeah. Play at uh, what yeah. division are they in? They're in the well, championship they're in, they're equivalent? Tier three, which is the third league of women's football. She's, she's 19, she's a goalkeeper. Wow. It's amazing. Travel the country. Yeah, brilliant. And she got a bit of a kick in the head at the weekend, didn't she? She shows did. what a brave goalkeeper she is as well. Yeah, well, what's really embarrassing is they video all the games. And they videoed this game, and the number 18 caught her foot into Imogen's mouth. Like that. And I'm behind the goal, having been banned from speaking by my daughter, and suddenly I shout, Breath, the number 18! And then I was told by the person who got a much better view than me that it was an accident, and I had to apologise to her at the end, and we shook hands. Pushy dad. Um, Pushy dad. Yeah. <laughs> proud, proud dad. Right, everyone. So the People's Powerhouse was set up as a direct response to the top-down nature of the Northern Powerhouse in 2017. Lots of images of white blokes in hard hats and high-vis jackets building things for people. The, people power, the People's Powerhouse was a complete antidote to that, articulating the energy and diversity of the true North and working with people instead of doing things to people. So I absolutely love what Edna and Tracy and Frankie have achieved as a team, and I'm really looking forward to hearing from Ruth later, who's just taken up the hot seat at the People's Powerhouse. So without further ado, let's introduce our first guest, Becky Bainbridge, the new CEO of Reclaim. So Becky, you've just been made the permanent CEO of Reclaim, and Reclaim's Twitter account describes you as Northern Working Class Non-Grad, Iron Brew Loving, Mega girl. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I have got my iron brew there. Oh, very good. Yeah. We're lucky, we're lucky to have you because I looked at your Twitter feed yesterday and yesterday you went down to that there in London. I did. And survived. What were the trains like? We're just... I'm going to be really fair. Yeah. I think they might have been having an off day because everything ran smoothly. <laughs> yeah. So we got on the train, we got seats, not together, but we got seats there and back. We had to do the whole running down to Platform 7 at Euston, but it was fairly smooth. I'm going to be slightly in awe of you now, because okay. it's not very often you find yourself in the company of a genuine TV film star. <laughs> right? I know you don't like to talk about it, but you have appeared in a top, top film. Oh, but everyone okay. in this room will say, my God, is that true? Yeah. Did you appear in 24-hour party people? I absolutely <laughs> did. I absolutely did. I mean, for a, a split second. A split second. A split second. <laughs> no, that's the difference between you and me. You feel the need to qualify the truth. <laughs> Whereas me and Michael, you'd think we've won like, loads of awards and stuff. Um, I look, I'm, I'm not trying to be the, you know, you've been to Tenerife, so I've been to Eleventhary. Uh -huh. But you were in the film of 24 Hour People depicting life in the rave scene in Manchester in the 90s. You were in it. I was there. <laughs> you were in it. Okay. I was a little bit, but only as a very young person. Okay, okay. Yeah. I, I like what you did so, there. Becky, tell, tell us about Reclaim. What, 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 what's your elevator pitch on it? Okay, so Reclaim is a charity. We are rooted in Manchester, but we are national. We have been known to work outside of Greater Manchester. We're an equalities organisation and we work with young people and we centre the voices, the thoughts, just everything about young working class people because for us, talent is everywhere and opportunity is not. So, um, I've looked at a lot of your campaign messaging. I worked with uh, the, the previous CEO of your of, of Reclaim and I was hugely impressed by, as I'm sure I'll be hugely impressed by you. And a lot of your messaging does reflect on the barriers that are in the way of working class young people getting on in life. How do you then maintain that really careful balance 
between inspiring them on one hand, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. and it, and giving them an alibi for failure on the other. Mm -hmm. do, do, you, do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. I mean, I wouldn't term it as an alibi for failure as such, but I'm, I understand what you mean. It's about highlighting the barriers that they are experiencing but haven't got a name for, don't understand why they're feeling that way, why things aren't working out the way they hoped it would, why hope is just knocked out of them at such an early age. And it's about balancing that kind of truth almost with right let's do something about this now yeah. come on you've got all of us behind you we will do what we can i took two young people down to uh, westminster yesterday they spoke brilliantly at an appg meeting about oracy and about absenteeism and about how you wow. know people can be held back just by the way that they speak um and I, I sat there, I literally said nothing the whole meeting because I don't need to. Yeah. These young people are there, they are talented, they are creative, and they just need the platform. Yeah. Chris, you know, I, I was talking to your colleague, uh, Olivia Clark, who's in the front row. Absolutely. And <laughs> she's my boss. No, absolutely. She's a trustee. No, no, but she's a trustee, and you've just been made, I think, permanently the CEO. Congratulations right. to you. Thank you. And, and, and I was just talking to Olivia, and I've got like a 22 year old and a 19 year old as well. Now, if you look at Rishi Sunak's government, his cabinet, 65% yeah. you know, of his cabinet are made up of people who went to a private school. Yeah. Okay, so how, when you meet somebody like Olivia who's passionate, mm -hmm. who's got something to offer, mm -hmm. how do you tell Olivia you could change the world, you know, when, when the cabinet is set up in such a way that it's penalising people like Olivia? Well, there's two elements to that. One is that we need to highlight the change that's needed. The fact that most of the cabinet come from privately educated backgrounds. I mean, look at the prime ministers we've had. Most of them are Eton educated. One school is providing the uh, leadership of our, of our country and, and that's not good enough. So again, it's that, that thing of truth. So we, we highlight the truth. But then we also point out that Angela Rayner is sat across the way there. She's standing up with her beautiful Northern accent. I'm thinking to myself, Andrew, is she in the corner? <laughs> <laughs> I wish she was. Yeah. Um, but she's standing up. We've got uh, Kim Leadbeater, we've got Emma Hardy. These are all powerful women, like Olivia, from Northern working class backgrounds, who aren't afraid to be who they authentically are. Uh, Olivia, do you think you can reach the stars, or do you think you'll be penalised? Um... In my nature, I can reach the stars, but in the way the society has like, um, already written a narrative for me, I think I'll be penalised. Does that make you angry? Furious. Does it? Yeah, because it's, and I always say like, this is a narrative that's been put on me at birth, being Northern, being working class, and being a woman. And I think everything that, all these narratives have just like, been pushed onto me and I try to rewrite that every day and I've got, that is my, kind of duty to do that for me, but do it for the next generation yeah. of women that are Northern and working class. You talk about the next generation, and you're 20. Yeah. And that's the point. I mean, I, I've got, this, uh, I've got this, this Southern accent, as you can tell. And I went for a job interview at the Portsmouth News, and I am what I am. I've only ever been what I am. I don't, my, my dad's a minor, or was a minor, you know, um, and, and my mum worked in a tax office. We came from a very diverse family. And, uh, but we, I'm from Kent, and I went for this interview, and this guy said to me, he said, you know what, a guy called Mark Aitchison, he said, when I hear your, your voice, Chris, you know what I think of? I think of a second car you know, salesman. That's what I think of. He said, what would you say to that? And I said to him, do you want to buy a car, Mark? <laughs> uh, the point is, is that if we let that stop us being who we are, we'll never be what we want to be, will we? 
Um, and do you find with your accent, you said you're a Huddersfield Giants fan. Yes. Um, and I nearly caused offence by saying they're not doing very well. But you did say that, Absolutely. they are. Corrected, yeah. But when you go to London and you talk to people in London and they hear your accent and the way you use, pronounce some words, do you find people go, oh, that's nice? Um, yeah, you... it's a mixture actually. And uh, there's quite often a very well intentioned, well meaning narrative of, ooh, haven't you got a lovely accent? Ooh, it's nice to hear someone northern. And my answer back to them is usually, yeah. it's a shame that I'm not the norm. Yeah. <laughs> because there's a lot of us who talk like this. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it does stick out like a sore thumb quite often. Although, I have to say, yesterday in the Aura Seat meeting that I was in, there were a lot of very beautiful northern accents in there. And, and, and the best, the best you know, antidote to, 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 to snobs is to smile at them. Seriously, have a laugh. Okay. You know, because they're not used to it. Genuinely. That's my advice for okay. free. I will take that. Thank <laughs> you. So, Becky, I'm really interested in the destinations for young people and, mm. and for, for young people like you and the things you want to achieve in your life, Olivia. Um, I'm, like, like Chris said, I'm also a music radio DJ and I speak to bands quite a lot of musicians. My youngest son is a, is a, a budding music producer. In fact, he's produced the, um, the Sting for our podcast. I don't know how he got that gig. Um, <laughs> we didn't pay him, did we? But, but, yeah, we I did, actually. Um, I, I'm troubled, though, by how many privately educated musicians and bands mm -hmm. and actors. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you see household name actors nowadays. Um, quite often they'll be privately educated because it's such a struggle mm -hmm. to, to get on that. And it's the same as well with elite athletes and writers. We've got our own poet for the People's Powerhouse <coughs> as well. But that's you know it's very much a, a preserve of the privileged. Yeah. Is, are the are the creative arts important to the aspirations of the the young people that come through Reclaim? Completely. I mean, we at Reclaim we try to kind of simplify what is a very complex topic in terms of social class by talking about the three factors that we think are important in in determining class, which is economic, how much money you've got, social, who do you know, but cultural. Have you got the ability to talk about the things that might sit in a room full of, uh, uh, full of middle class people? And so culturally, we need to make sure that we are enriching uh, young working class people's lives. Not so that they can fit in necessarily, but because they're, they're entitled to the same opportunities as everybody else to experience a rich and diverse cultural education and that can only lead then to diversity in things like the world of film uh, media i mean seven percent of this country attend private school and yet we have professions that are overly dominated by people who went to private school journalism being top of the tree law being another one the creative yeah. industries that as you've spoken about and we're missing out on so much talent it, it, it's, you know, the more I think about it, the more I just don't understand why. Yeah, there's a, there's a great band from Stockport called Blossoms. Now, oft, often people will think about, you know, you get a working class band from the north of England and you think of the Happy Mondays and they've got that kind of particular edginess and, uh, about where they're from. But actually, Blossoms are just proper regular, yeah? And they're like, they're hinterland and what they've put back into Stockport. I just think it's one of those great success stories and I'd love to hook you up with them because my DJ partner um, 
does, does a lot does a lot of work with him and he's good mates with the drummer. Oh, I, I he makes his promises all the time. He makes his promises all the time. He follows through on them as well. On that note, I'm going to have to say to you, you've been the best speaker we've had so far. But we've got to bring on, we've got to bring on the second speaker as well. Thanks very much, Becky. Thank you. I'd really like to welcome Amna Abdul Latif now, the co-founder of Three Jarvis. Hello, Amna. Now, tell us, you're also a Labour councillor in Ardwick. Ar I am. Ardwick Ward. Yeah, I should be opposite across the road right now, but I uh, prioritise being here today with all Fantastic. of you. Fantastic. You've got, you got full council today. I have full council, <laughs> yes. But you go, it goes on for hours anyway. You it, can dip it, in and out, surely. Well, no, you're not supposed to dip <laughs> in and out. You are supposed to sit there for hours. Well, I, well I'm good friends with the Chief Whip, Susanna Reeve, oh, so I'll well, have a word you, and tell you, her that you're you on the I did, I, did, I did speak to her, don't worry. <laughs> and what I want to try and do is, I could talk to you all day about uh, England Wales yesterday, which you watched as well, but I want to take you back a bit, because this was a tweet that changed your life. You've got your colleagues in the audience who's... Mm -hmm. uh, who, who, who changed it with you and you went to watch a football match uh, England versus Ukraine in 2020 yeah. the quarter final the, uh, it was the Euros wasn't it, it no it was the, uh, the World Cup in, uh, it was the Euros it was the Euros because yeah. the, the 2020 played in 2021 yeah absolutely and it, the tweet started three hijabis walked into a bar mm -hmm. and it went viral it reached more than 1.2 million people um, you basically wanted to target the uh, anti-racism in football didn't you just explain that well, that wasn't the intention when we first started. So, uh, you know, it was it was when things were starting to open up after COVID, um, and I'd not seen my uh, two uh, sisters here, uh, Huda and, and Shyster, who both live. One lives in Oxford, one lives in London. Of the two, um, of the two, which one do you like the most? <laughs> I'm not going to answer that. Divisive. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very yes, divisive. No, I see. <laughs> but yeah, so it wasn't the intention. It was literally we were meeting as friends. The quarterfinals game just happened to be on. <laughs> Shyster insisted we needed to find somewhere to watch it. Um, and so I was staying in a hotel. They had a TV and a bar. And we were like, let's just sit here um, and watch it. It was relatively quiet. Um, and uh, we tweeted the picture of ourselves watching the game and the play on kind of the three hijabis and the three lions thrashing Ukraine, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it went insane. And it led to a Guardian article. It was, you know, we started to become known as the three hijabis. Um, and it wasn't actually until the final game where myself and, and Huda and Shyster we went down to Wembley where Huda lives um, and um, watched the game in her house because we couldn't get tickets. Um, and uh, and it was um, it was you know it was a brilliant game. Like you know we, like who thought that England was going to get to the finals in the first place? And then to actually you know be able to drag Italy right to the end um, is you know was insane. And so you know we were very excited. Um, but obviously, you know, losing that game, we both sat, all of us sat there um, at the end of that night and, and knew that it was going to lead to a deluge of, you know, racist abuse mm. towards the three, the three, the three penalty takers you missed. Mm. Were um, three young black players. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for us as, as women who experience a lot of discrimination, sadly, um, you know, when we are publicly, because we are all publicly visible um, in the spaces that we hold, um, we experience a lot of Islamophobia, a lot of racism uh, that gets targeted our way. And, and we could see it. We knew, we knew it was going to be an issue. And um, 
And so the next morning, I have to say, I love a sleep in. I hate mornings. I'm not a morning person. And I remember Shaisa, like, I'm like, can you get up now? I was like, yeah, all right. And we'd already discussed the night before that we needed to do something. We, we felt like we'd had a bit of a platform. We were kind of being asked by media to speak. I was on Manchester BBC Radio that morning to talk about the final game. And, and so, you know, we thought we've got a bit of a platform. We need to utilise this. Um, and so we'd, uh, I saw that Shaisa and Hood already started pulling together a letter, a petition, um, and that's what ended up going viral, is that petition to ban racists from football. Um, which for life. For life, yes. Absolutely, because it's not like they stop being racist after it, two games. Well, you know, I'm, I'm all for kind of educating people and, and you know, making people understand um, and move, uh, you know, and change the way that they behave, but, uh, you know, we wanted to make a powerful statement and we, we just felt that that was the way... To do it. Michael, you're a uh, big fan of Blackburn Rovers. Well, more, more, more than that, I work at Blackburn Rovers on match days in the in the hospitality lounges, and frankly, um, it's embarrassing that our football club in our town, I don't, I don't live there, but the, the football club of that community fails to reflect the community it lives in to the extent mm. that it does. Massive strides have been made by, by a new management that's come, come into the club. Um, over recent years, and I think the you know the, the, they've done all sorts of different things at the club. They've introduced prayer rooms, kids outreach into different communities, not just the, the ones that would traditionally go and support Blackman Rovers, and of course they've signed a British Asian footballer, Dylan Markaday, who um, he's not a mainstay of the squad, but he's come with a big reputation. And and again, there was a real buzz about the place that, that we'd signed mm. one of the very very few British Asian players from from Spurs. But is that enough? And what more can a club? like Rovers be doing or, or what or even could City and United be doing which is obviously just down the road from you in, yeah. in, in the ward that you represent I mean I, I, I worked uh, you know many years ago I worked for a grassroots youth organisation youth was my background <laughs> youth work uh, was my background um, and uh, you know and a lot of we use sport as a mechanism to engage young people um, because they love the sport and you know and I think the beauty of football is that anyone can play football you know you don't necessarily have to be great at it unless obviously you want to go on uh, to uh, you know as a career but anyone can play football and you can play it anywhere um, and all you need is a ball essentially um, you know and a group of people uh, to do it in um, and it was always an aspiration for a lot of the young people that we worked with yeah. to make it um, and we worked you know predominantly with a very large South Asian community um, you know very poor working class um, uh, community in, 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 in the way that you know the, the makeup of that area uh, was um, and those kids you know were brilliant they were really brilliant they were playing in kind of you know the under 10s teams the under 14s etc but very few of them ever got through yeah. um, and even though they were great it didn't seem that the bigger clubs, the you know, the kind of the leagues, uh, were really looking at them as individuals who could, um, you know, bring great benefit to their clubs. Um, and I do think there is, you know, and I think they talked a lot about, you know, that they felt that there was a lot of Islamophobia associated to them not being seen to be a cultural fit into clubs, um, you know, because they wanted space and time to pray, for instance, you know, and sometimes we have to, like, you know, make sure that we're doing games so that it fits in yeah. uh, with them during Ramadan, they're fasting and so games were later in the day because otherwise they're too tired, um, you know, and so forth. But that didn't seem to be a culture fit for the big clubs that were coming and, and, and being there, you know, but they're, they just weren't being picked. And I think there, there, does, there does have to be a cultural shift yeah. in the way that clubs are engaging with grassroots football, because yeah. grassroots football is very diverse. 
It's just that something seems to be stopping beyond that, and I think that's what we need to be working on. Yeah, Chris, what about in women's football, Chris? Yeah, you, yeah. You, you know a bit about through your daughter. No, absolutely. And um, uh, what, what struck me is uh, I was cheering loudest when the Lionesses won, mm. beat Germany 2 1, fantastic. And the starting lineup uh, was an all white starting lineup. And some people have raised that as an issue. I mean, is that a problem? Of course, you know, of course it is. I mean, if it, I think this is the thing that you have to, if we're consciously looking at a space and seeing that it's not diverse and we're noticing that, then there is an issue. Surely that's, you know, that's something that then we think this is not an attack on the Lionesses mm. or, you know, the England team or anything. It's about, you know, if we notice things and things don't seem right, um, then we just think actually there's some, some work to do here. Mm. And that's, I think that's the way we need to constantly be approaching these things. Um, you know, that it's not always, and I think this is when you talk about anti-racism and you talk about inequalities, everyone thinks that it's an attack uh, on, you know, on an organisation or a, a person. It's not. It's about, you know, it's about challenge because we want to see change. And I think Becky talked about, all you know, that change needs to happen in order for, you know, people like Olivia, people like ourselves to actually feel like we don't need to be a culture fit, that what we bring shifts and changes the culture and we create a culture together that feels more inclusive for everyone. Um, and, you know, and I think there, there is a problem. Thank you. Listen, now, we're quite self-evidently a couple of white blokes, but we want to be allies, and I think a lot of the people in this room as well, from, with their ethnic backgrounds as, as majority white in this country, want, come to an event like this, they're going to want to be allies to, to you and what you do. But I'm also very conscious of the fact that we're only talking about race issues and, 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 and tolerance of, of, of people of other faiths. You know, with, with the, clearly with the woman who identifies herself very overtly as a follower of Islam. Mm -hmm. Why aren't we talking about that in our own spaces as well? What, what more can we be doing? Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, showing allyship is about action. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the main thing that I see. There's a lot of talking um, in spaces and not a lot of actually implementing that change and that action. Um, and, you know, it shouldn't have to be that, you know, we're, we're the only ones talking about Islamophobia yeah. or racism or that the black players have to come out and, you know, talk about their experiences because they're horrific and they're constant. Yeah. You know, nobody wants to have to talk about those, you know, negative experiences. They want to talk about, you know, the game of football and you know what they bring to their their team and how much they love the game and uh, so you know but that's that should be also our responsibility and I think for us as you know three visibly Muslim women who aren't black um, and you know will never be able to understand what it means to be uh, somebody who is black in this country it's about speaking up and holding that space to say actually this is not okay and just because we're not black doesn't mean that we can't you know hold that space and say this you know this needs to be dealt with and I think that's what all of us should do that doesn't mean however that we speak over people who are stepping up and talking about those issues from their own lived experience because I think that's really important but if that person isn't in that space that you're in at that time you need to be the one that's kind of yeah. raising those uh, those things. Just ask one quick question before we go to our final speaker would you start Phil Foden against Senegal? <laughs> <laughs> do you know what um, possibly. Uh, I have to say that my daughters absolutely love Bellingham, um, and <laughs> give them a shout out. And my mum is a huge. I'm not sure she listens to the Northern Spin, but well, we'll, we'll, we'll what do you call it? It's all right. If, if Bellingham, please, uh, you know, my daughters want to meet you. Uh, <laughs> 
Uh, and my mum's a massive Liverpool fan. If I don't mention my mum, she is going to kill me. Um, she's a huge Liverpool fan. She's actually the person that I always, when I think about football fans, I always think about my mum because she's the nuttiest person when it comes to football and she can tell you anything uh, about Liverpool. If you want to have her one day and, and give her a quiz, she'll be well up for it. Um, uh, but she loves Henderson. Um, so, you know, for me, I think Bellingham, Henderson, Rashford, Foden... Okay. I think, you know, it would be I think great. Got, I think you've got a job as a politician there because you didn't answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> but you thanked everybody by doing it. So, uh, listen, thanks very much for taking the time Thank to speak. You. Thank you very much. Final guest, uh, our final guest on the uh, on the Northern Spin podcast for the third segment. Usually, when we record our our, our sections of, of the podcast, we describe our third bit as the fun bit, where I I try and pressurise Chris into adopting a few more n- northern cultural norms to kind of counterbalance his upbringing in the deep south of England. Um, so our next our next guest is Ruth Hannan, the director of the People's Planet. So welcome Ruth, you've joined uh, the People's Powerhouse relatively recently from the RSA, which obviously has a long tradition of social action and progressive policy. What was it that attracted you to this job? Um, well, two things. The RSA is an organisation uh, historically of, of social action and progressive policy, but it wasn't living its values. Oh, wow. Um, You're taking notes, Chris, this is controversy. <laughs> we, 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 the staff body had been trying to unionise for some time yes. and the management were blocking that. Um, and that, that, was hard, that was hard work and that was um, quite tiring for me. And then I saw this job come up and I thought, this feels more like my values and we'd worked yeah. with People's Powerhouse before and for me it was about the fact that it offered an opportunity really work with people who meant what they said about wanting people voices to be heard for people to participate in decisions about their lives um, and I think I said I, I was recovering from Covid so I was probably a little bit um, more sentimental than I am normally. Are you, are you over Covid? Or uh, they, this, is in the summertime. this is in the summertime. <laughs> um, and I said and I think they said what you know what do you think the people's powerhouse represents and I said um, hope. Um, I said I think it offers people hope, and I want to contribute to that. Yeah. So yeah, that was that was it really. Brilliant. Ruth. So Chris has been reading up on you. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, uh, I've got all the story, all the gen. You wrote a piece in Northern Agenda, edited by Rob Parsons, who produces the second best Northern, <laughs> Northern podcast, um, second only to us. Do you think Leveling Up exists? Because that was the article you wrote about this week. I did, and I've, I've, I've been maybe a little bit mean about levelling up quite a lot recently. <laughs> um, I, think, um, I think I was speaking to somebody who's working with people in um, communities in Cumbria that are really marginalised. You know, they're called left behind and all those horrible phrases that people use. Um, and she, said, she told me something that somebody had said, and they said, levelling up to what? Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was really... Um, a key thing because I think for me the big thing about levelling up is it's on somebody else's terms it's it's being decided by people who don't live in the north don't particularly know the north 
Um, and you know, it's a, it's a little bit like being assessed when you're at school and being told what the solution was to your problems. Um, we don't get to decide what happens. We don't say this is what would make our community better. This is what would make my town, my region better. So I think for me, it, it's I think it's a distraction. So it's it. Do you think it exists? I don't. Well, I know I don't think it does. No. I think I'm, I mean I think if Liz Truss had survived longer than she had, it would have just. Well, it was faded already, away. It was already faded she away. wasn't interested in no, it. No, she wasn't. No, she wasn't. Um, in the article, you speak about the need for devolution, which Andy Byrne spoke about very eloquently in there. And you point out that the number of citizen assemblies in the north remains very low. Mm. Um, okay, if you've got a wish list, what does your wish list look like? What do you want to see? Oh, your podcast isn't long enough. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think there's two things. I think actual meaningful participatory democracy so devolution is good but if we end up with just a replica of a Westminster model of government for our regions then nothing will change for us so for me it's about meaningful participatory democracy it's about you know I think Jamie was talking Jamie Driscoll was talking about really about having um, assemblies where people get to decide what happens with the money in their region um, and I think it's about things like you know it's really boring technocratic stuff like participatory budgeting you know I, I run a small community group and we have to apply for a grant every year and I made the radical suggestion that every area should get to decide what that money gets spent on rather than all of us who run these little groups having to apply for these little grants and we might get it and I said if my community decides that I'm, we don't get the money I'm fine with that. What I'm not fine with is a couple of bureaucrats and a couple of local councillors who don't live in my area deciding that my group is worthy in some way. So for me, it's, it's real participatory democracy. And, and that means showing real trust in ordinary people. Wherever they live, not thinking, oh, well, they're poor, <coughs> they're not well-educated, so they might not make a good decision. Well, we've just had a government rammed full of privately educated people, mm. and so far they have not proven to me that they have made yes. a good decision. No, no. There's a really great piece that I saw at the weekend by um, Andy Westwood from the University of Manchester, and oh, economist from the University of Cambridge, used to be at Manchester. Anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it was about universal basic infrastructure, mm. Diane Coyle used to oh, okay. economics editor with the Observer as well. And it was absolutely fantastic because it, it, it was actually, it cut through all the nonsense about levelling up. That actually, if a community like, I don't know, pluck one out of thin air, Bramall in Stockport, which is probably the wealthiest, most southernest part of Stockport, if something local to them was going to close, you can bet your bottom dollar that the retired people, that the, that the business people, solicitors, that, that, that they lobby their local councillors, and, and they, they get what it was being done to them stopped because they've got what we call social capital. But what, what uh, Andy and Diane's piece look to do is to actually empower communities by law, by con constitution, to say there is, a, there is a level of universal infrastructure that every community should have a right to that, um, that that's a defensible position and that, that, that anything that would be to distract away from that would be stopped. And I just thought... 
genius, yeah. absolute genius. Yeah, I mean, I think to empower local authorities to help those communities. Yeah, and you know, I mean, you know, we talk about the north, and yeah, we're here talking saying we talk about this is the north, but actually, parts of the north are really wealthy. You know, I'm I'm from North Yorkshire, and the town that I'm from is like one of the little tiny pinpricks of red in a sea of blue that is North Yorkshire. But a lot of North Yorkshire is phenomenally wealthy, and um, you know they do get things done. And as you say, those those places where people have spare time, spare social energy, social capital, their areas benefit from that. But what if I, I've got this theory as well that what if people who lived in those areas that weren't getting any of that knew that there was a different way? Yeah. Why don't we? You know, we're not telling people that universal basic infrastructure could be a good thing and this is how we could get it or talking about universal basic income or community wealth building or well-being economies because most people get their news from social media or from you know mainstream media and nobody talks about that and we had all this stuff talking about the economy it was presented as though like the economy is, is like biology, like it's a hard scientific Facts. fact. Yeah, it's it's not. not, it's yeah. not hard science. And there are different ways, but if people don't know about it, then they don't know that things can be different. And I suppose that goes back to this idea of giving people hope. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Mm. Um, just about to wrap up in a second. Um, how many people think Keir Starmer is the future? How many people you know, are excited by the idea of him being the next Prime Minister? Okay. Yeah, it's got so to be better than the alternative, Chris. Yeah. No, so, so, but, but how, many, how many people, how many people, you know, are going to vote Conservative in the next election? Okay, which is fewer hands. That's just your okay. hand up there. No, no, no. But I actually live in Chorley, where uh, Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker, is our MP. So, no so that gets you off the hook. Absolutely. But, but, okay. So, what I find interesting is most people aren't going to vote Conservative, but only three hands went up. Say, out of twenty, well, forty, because of. Most people got two hands. Um, the point I'm making is that that's not a ringing endorsement. So, so what do people think about politics right now? I mean, can, can just sort of fire a few words. If you were to fire a word, we've got we've got a councillor in the front row. What do you think, Olivia? What do you think of politics right now? Thinking of a better word. Um, <laughs> disgraceful. Disgraceful. As anything else, words. What words would you describe politics? Right. How do you feel right now? Okay. Disconnected. Yeah. Disconnected. Hopeless. 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 Yeah. yeah. Okay. What about gentleman in the back row? What do you, what's your word? How do you describe politics right now? Disconnected. We've already had disconnected. Yeah. So this is like family fortunes. You can't come up with the same <laughs> word twice. <laughs> what about the lady next to you? What word did you use? Shambolic. Shambolic. What about yourself, sir? What would you use? Yeah. Depressing. Sorry. Depressing. Depressing. Yeah. And isn't that what about the lady next to you to the left? You had to describe, you know, politics at the moment. Disenfranchising. That's a really long word. You'd be, really, you'd be really good at Scrabble. Um, the point is, Michael's right. I always, I look at glasses half full. I always try and see the best in people. I don't believe in saying nasty things about people. This problem with social media. And if you've ever been the victim of nastiness, it's, it's horrible. It's horrible. It, it's a lot harder to be nasty than it is to be nice. But I think I look at politics at the moment. It's the reason where Northern Spring came from. We both looked at it. We both felt all the words that you felt at the moment. And we felt... We can either stand on the sidelines and throw brickbats and complain to each other's wives, or we can try and do something about it. And we believe passionately in the North. Um, and I think what you get from speaking to three amazing speakers today is actually there is hope. You know, there is a connect. You know, you do feel enfranchised by speaking to people like Olivia as well. But we can't do that ourselves on our own. 
And I think we're trying to start something which hopefully will, I know you like revolutions, Michael, but we're going to start a revolution. <laughs> well, that's, that's great, Chris. What I took from People's Powerhouse, Ruth, and I'll give the, the, the final word to you, if, if, if you will, is politics isn't, and engaging and changing things isn't just about joining a political party, standing for the council, and delivering lots of leaflets to get someone elected into a job, which I'm sure you'll admit has very little power because of the way this country's wired. There are so many other things that people can get involved in. I mean, we're journalists, so we're doing our bit, which is just basically being gas heads, gas heads on the whole thing. But what can people do to get involved to make the world a better place beyond just, you know, delivering leaflets? I mean, I think for me, it, it's politics with a small P, and this building today is filled with lots and lots of people who are doing politics with a small P. The grassroots organisations, like the three hijabis, trying to influence and campaign... Um, I think that's how we get involved and trying to get residents involved in their local communities because actually that's what people really care about. So get involved, find out your local organisations, get involved. But also for me, our job is to connect people together so when they start to maybe feel a bit hopeless, we can speak, get them with somebody who can give them that energy to keep going. Brilliant. That's all now we've Thank got. You. Thank you, everybody. That's all for the, this live performance of the Northern Spin podcast with me and Chris. Subscribe to all the major po podcast platforms and give us a follow on Twitter at Northern underscore Spin 1. I've been Michael Taylor and he's been Chris Bryant. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.